In Isaiah 40, 31, those that wait on the Lord will indeed be able to mount up as with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll not become faint, but rather they'll be motivated and compelled to move forward in that direction that is, of course, the recipient of the great blessings and power and strength of the God of heaven. It is good, isn't it, to be able to come together and worship God, to appreciate the blessing of this first day of the week and the opportunity given to us. We're so thankful for the presence of every person that's here today. We hope that as we study about the number two, you see that on the wall to my left, that we'll be reminded about the sweetness, the power, and the unforgettable number of lessons that surround a little number like this one. As we take up that particular matter, let me go ahead and again say, just as Alan mentioned it, be at that uh, gospel meeting next Sunday. So, so f much looking forward to being a part of that gospel endeavor. I'd ask that you keep that meeting in your prayers, if you would, that all would be well in terms of presenting the lessons most needful for that congregation. But we look forward to being back here with you with the blessing of God, certainly in, in, in a couple of weeks. The number two, maybe these opening thoughts will motivate us to give some initial consideration to things that are not by any means surprising. We know very well the number of choices that surround you and me each day. Some choices are very significant in their consequences, others not so much so. But yet the fact remains, in some cases, you and I have the opportunity to choose amongst so many particulars. The number of colors you can get for a car isn't limited to just a half dozen or so. We know there's lots of choices, at least most of the time. Many other things also are such that there are a large number of things from which to choose. But as you notice on that slide, when it comes to the most significant, the most important, the most lasting matters, God has reduced the number of choices to two. Why don't you and I develop the rest of that thought for the remainder of our lesson this morning and use this lesson entitled Two to give thought to the following. First of all, there are only two great rulers that every person having reached the age of accountability will serve. Only two. It's not as if there's a far larger number than that. There is but two. On the one hand, there is the marvelous one known as Christ Jesus our Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the very one who sinlessly died on the cross that each one might have opportunity to be saved. He is the triumphant one described in the Revelation who, in fact, rides on that great victorious and triumphant white horse. He is, of course, the one who in such mercy and sweetness is the correct and right judge of all matters. On the other hand, on the other hand, there is one known as the devil. He's often called Belial. He's sometimes called Beelzebub. He's referenced, of course, as the one who is the great deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12, verse 9. He is described as you and I as a murderer and one who's been so from the beginning, John 8, 44. Nonetheless, He is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He is the prince of the power of the hour, Ephesians 2, verse 2. And so the question comes to you and me. Will I serve this great leader who loves and is compassionate toward those who are citizens of Him? Or will I serve the one who tries to devour me as a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, 8. Do you want to serve a ruler, a leader who cares about you, or one who cares not at all for you? 
the choice is yours and mine. You and I have a choice to make. Will I be a faithful and dedicated servant to this great leader, this ruler whom we've described as Jesus? Or will I choose to turn my back upon him and by default then serve in the army of the other one? Look at the second idea. Not only is there only two great rulers, could I ask you to notice there's only two kingdoms, only two of any eternal significance. Let's describe them. First of all, there is that kingdom of Christ. You and I encounter passages that refer, of course, to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in as much as He is king, that means there are subjects in His kingdom. In Colossians 1.13, Paul, very clearly writing to the church in Colossae, described the fact that they had been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. He has a kingdom, doesn't he? This great ruler we just described a moment ago, he has a kingdom. Praise be unto God, we can be part of that kingdom. You'll notice some of these verses that speak about that kingdom. In Ephesians 3.21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. This kingdom is the church, you see. This kingdom over which Christ reigns, it is the blessed organization of the saved. Those whose names are in the book of life, those you see who have forfeited their allegiance to that devil and his kingdom and who serve with majesty and passion the great ruler Jesus Christ. But look at the other choice. If one does not then serve in that kingdom, look at the other one. It's the kingdom of darkness. That was the very reference Paul made in Colossians 1.13, wasn't it? They had been translated out of that kingdom of darkness. Today, there are still so many who choose to remain in the kingdom of darkness. They make a choice, a decision, if you please, in which they choose to remain wandering about, groping in darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life, John 8, verse 12. Tragic, isn't it, then, that some choose to remain in darkness, the kingdom of darkness over which, over which Satan is the ruler. You'll notice in Galatians 1, verse number 4, as Paul began that Galatian letter, wasn't it to them that he highlighted that those Galatians had been compelled and motivated to come out of that world of corruption and evil, and to, of course, serve the great Jesus Christ. One more time, the question is mine and yours. Which kingdom are you a part of at this very minute? We can't be a part of both of them at the same time. It's impossible. In the same way, you can't serve two masters at the same time. Wasn't it true that Jesus very directly said, you cannot serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. And so again, the question is very compelling. What is it for you and me this very minute? How about point number three? As you and I consider another element, another consideration of the number two, there are only two bases for life. Just two. I realize that it seems as if life has its complexities, its intricacies, that life is filled with all of its potential and possibility, and no doubt it is. 
But nonetheless, isn't it true? There are only two bases for life, and every individual of that accountable age chooses one or the other. There's no third option. Let's, de let's develop what they are first. We are told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. And he highlighted, did he not, that there are these considerations and they are far, far apart. One can choose to walk through this life based upon the matter of sight, basing everything upon what I conclude, what I am by investigation and analysis able to appreciate, or there is that reality of faith. We walk by faith, Paul wrote. Faith, we read in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In its most, in its most basic appreciation, faith is doing what God says to do, the way He says to do it, for the reason He says to do it. That's the practical appreciation of faith. Lofty definitions of man sometimes lose the point in terms of daily and efficient application. Faith simply is this, to do what God says for the reason He said it, in the way He said it. One by one, isn't that what they in Hebrews 11 did? Noah built an ark. Noah never asked why. The fact he'd never seen rain apparently didn't motivate in him to question the God of heaven. He simply did what God said for him to do. Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees. We have no record Abraham ever asked why. He simply did what God told him to do. We walk by faith and not by sight. Each of us today has a choice. Is it such that we will choose then to direct and to motivate our life through our days in this flesh in such a way that we walk based thoroughly, firmly, and only on the Word of God? Or we will allow our sight to distract us, the devil to allure us. We will look at other things more substantial, more vital, more needful than what God has said. One more time, you may notice some of those features and those verses I've asked you to notice. We have in the Old Testament, Naaman was on the verge of making this very mistake, wasn't he? In 2 Kings 5, when he himself, though a leper, he had been given instruction whereby he could find relief from that terrible disease. But it wasn't at all what he anticipated, and it wasn't what he wanted. He wanted some glorification for the fact that he was a notable person of influence, but that didn't matter to God. And isn't it true that you and I today in humility should simply choose to walk by faith and not by sight. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, verses 17 and following, we notice on that occasion that the outward things that are but temporal, they perish away and they don't last because you and I look on things that are eternal. Isn't that what faith's all about? The next one, number four, links rather closely to this one. And it hits us all very directly and very hardly. You'll notice that there are two classifications of life. Every single person in this room of age of accountability falls into one or the other of these classifications. Every one of us. There isn't a third option. There isn't a third category in which one may happily and joyously be placed. There is but two. 
Let's let Paul identify them in Romans 6, verses 16 and following. He began with this rather compelling question. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And there we have it. Paul, in fact, used that word or. There's only these two categories, my friends. You'll notice obedience is one of them. That category in which one chooses by his own choice and decision to be a faithful and devoted servant to that ruler we described a few minutes ago in the kingdom we've already identified with that basis of life that we've called faith. Obedience. You and I know that we often live in a time in which obedience is rationalized away. Individuals who aren't obedient can make excuses about it. Well, this is why I didn't, and surely God will understand. May we not fall into a trap like that. Either we're obedient or we're not. There is no excuse to be made. Paul identified here in Romans 6.16, as he addressed the Romans, can you hear the thunderous tone? I suppose a hush fell over that when that, book, when that particular passage was written, or whether when it was read. Are you a servant to sin and thus to disobedience? Because sin is the transgression of God's law, 1 John 3.4. Or are you a servant and thus obedient? Some additional verses, it seems to me, would be very vital for our understanding. If we dip back as far as the book of Hosea, closing verse to that 14-chapter book, that ancient prophet, of course, as he set forth the nature of the Word of God to the people of that day, that book closed with these words, "'Who is wise, and he shall understand these things?' Prudent, and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. Only two classifications. There were those that were wise, there were those that were prudent, and they followed and obediently so that which was the way of God. But on the other hand, there were the transgressors. Which one today am I, and which are you? God has allowed us, with the nature of His Word, to easily be able to determine the answer. It isn't hard. And may we not try to excuse ourselves. Didn't Jesus say more than once in the New Testament, there's no business for making excuses. In Luke chapter 9, the reference was, they that have put their hand to the plow and looked back aren't fit for the kingdom of heaven. What about you and me today? The Word of God's challenging to us, isn't it? As you and I consider these two classifications of life, one last time these classifications are highlighted before us, and we find it in First Thessalonians, or rather, Second Thessalonians, chapter one. Listen as verses seven through nine are presented to us. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Here's a classification. A group of individuals who themselves are disobedient. Paul said so. And as such, they now find themselves receiving that just matter of their disobedience. How frightful. How eternally frightful. As we close number four, which is it for me and you today? 
as you contemplate that, look at number five. One more time as we give categorization of the number two. These previous two are also related to this one. They perhaps could have been combined in a way, but I thought it wise to separate them just to highlight how frequently the Word of God makes reference to these numbers two. Nextly, two categories of people. I suppose, as we noted in Bible class this morning, that so many would choose to reckon themselves as at least somewhat righteous. Do we ever find that phrase in the Bible anywhere? Is there such a thing as being somewhat righteous? Or is it only this, there are those that are righteous and there are those that are wicked? No middle ground. Let's develop that looking at some of these verses. Every individual falls into one or the other of these categories at a particular moment in time. The righteous. We find such a sweet refrain throughout the Word of God in relation to those who were dutifully obedient, those who chose to follow the God of heaven, even in the midst of very unfavorable circumstances on earth. These righteous, as they were highlighted and described so often, they were presented as the sweet matters or the sweet gems in the very crown of the things of heaven. Read Malachi chapters 3 and 4. Maybe in fairness to that, we come to verses like Psalm 119, verse 172. That longest chapter in all the Bible. And yet in that verse, we read this interesting appreciation that those who are righteous will sing of that righteousness to God. We did that this morning, and we have done so so far. Not only that, might we remember in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this description. As Paul wrote to that church in Corinth, he said, but He, that's God, made Him, that's Christ, to be made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Are you righteous? Have you been made righteous? It only happens as one obeys the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice in that sense, God will then allow the blood of Christ and the character of His faithfulness to make you the same. Because on the other hand, look at the wicked, those who are given to iniquity, those who choose to live a life of that kind. Verses like these no doubt come to mind. Paul and highlighted in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, this description in which those in Corinth had in a previous walk of life, they had made choices to live in fornication. They'd been made choices to live with homosexuality. They'd made choices to live as drunkards and other things like that. Paul said they weren't righteous at that time. Do you see the distinction with me again? But now they'd been forgiven of those things and they no longer lived like that. They were now living as righteous. Aren't you thankful to the God of heaven that our sins can too be forgiven and that you and I can in fact live righteously, holily, and godly? That particular discussion of number five, one more time, hits all of us very squarely. Which am I at this moment? Am I living righteously or wickedly? The choice belongs to you and me. God won't force us into either category and neither will the devil. We get to make the final choice. May we all in wisdom and may we all with eternal prudence choose to live righteously. Look at number six. 
two roads to travel through this life. There's untold how many roadways there are in the United States of America and, yea, around the world. And yet, when you think about the roadways, the pathways through life, there is but two. Jesus described each one of them for us and did so so very tersely and compactly. In Matthew chapter 7, as he drew near the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, to those of that day, and yea, to us as well, he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. Two roads. As you and I notice them, that narrow one that we, you and I just mentioned, this narrow roadway. Oh, the way to heaven isn't going to be a major superhighway, if you please. It's going to be a crooked, narrow, difficult-to-travel roadway. The devil will ensure that our life here isn't filled with roses, and it's always going to be beset with difficulties, challenges, questions, and problems. But if we want to go to heaven, we've got to stay on the narrow road. We can't jump over to the superhighway that leads to hell, for it won't take us where we want to go, surely. On the other hand, that wide road. In a way, wasn't it that which Paul described in the 8th chapter of the Roman letter? When he described on that occasion that they in Rome too had a dramatic choice to make, we are no different than they. There's no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Are you walking after the Spirit today, or are you walking after the flesh? Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Which is it for you and me today? Let's be honest with ourselves. We aren't fooling God after all. We may fool everybody else in this auditorium, but we'll never fool God. Are you walking the narrow road today or the wide one? As you and I come to the close of number six, let's, let's see where else they prompt us, motivate us, lead us. Number seven. As you see these characterizations of two, could you and I be so bold and so brash as to notice there's but two responses to Jesus' commandments? To those who've heard them, there's only two choices. Either one responds in wisdom, as I have asked you to notice here, which is characterized by the Lord Himself as those who build on the rock. In Matthew 7, verses 24 and following, Jesus said, those who hear my sayings of mine and do them, I will liken him to a man that builds on the rock. On the other hand, the one who hears the sayings of him but does not do them, he said, I liken him to one who builds on the sand. As I speak before an audience like this one, we appreciate the directness of that teaching for you and me today. Having heard the word of the Lord, having heard the teaching of Jesus, am I constructing on the rock or am I building on the sand? It's a notable question. We each understand that the rock, although the things of life came, to, came upon it, the wind and the waves, it stood firm. It stood strong. It wasn't crushed. It wasn't overwhelmed. 
But on the other hand, that which was constructed on the sand, it fell beneath the load of what it faced. We each are going to face possibly some very great things in life. Things that may bring us to consideration of teetering on matters of disbelief. May you and I have built on something strong enough to withstand the onslaught. Having built on something steady enough, firm enough, eternal enough, that it shall be able to withstand all that is waged against it. Question today. Are you likened to the wise man who built on the rock, or are you likened to the foolish man that built on the sand? The question is yours and mine. If Jesus were standing here directly before us today, and in an interesting proverbial way He is with His Word, He asks me and He asks you. He wants us so much to be those that build on the rock, but are we? Or are we building on the sand? That kind of question brings us to number eight. Do you realize with me that from the teaching of the Bible there is but two ways to die? I'm not talking about the physical things that may actually bring death. I mean the spiritual condition in which one will pass from the scenes of this life. There's only two. Could I direct your attention to Revelation 14? As we come to the very last book in all of the book of God, we arrive at a scene in which John the Revelator was himself given these words, John, what you see, write in a book. And in chapter number 14, this is what he saw. He saw the dead. But of that description, he was able to say this in verse 13. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. We notice there then that there are those who died in the Lord. They had served King Jesus. They were members of the church. They had been obedient through life. They walked by faith and not by sight. These were individuals who had bequeathed themselves relinquishing control to Jesus as their king. They died in the Lord. Jesus pronounced a blessing on them. A blessing. They're now in a better place than this. The difficulties and woes of this life have long since passed, and what's more, they await a marvelous day of judgment in which they'll enter into what we're going to look at in number 9 in just a minute. To die in the Lord. But look at the other part of this. Suppose one's not in the Lord. Suppose one is not living faithfully. You can't die in the Lord if you don't live in the Lord. And those thus who are not living in the Lord, what if death should come to them this afternoon? Many a time as Denise and I look at the obituaries, it's interesting to notice the ages. I suppose we're all used to seeing an 85, a 90-year-old pass away. How often do you notice a 46-year-old? 39, 27, 51. It happens all the time. Not a one of us are promised tomorrow. Make sure you're living in the Lord today so you can die that way if that should come to you or me. Are you living then in the Lord today? If you're not, there's going to be a moment of opportunity in just a few short minutes. I hope your heart will be tender. I hope it will be responsive in a positive way. Don't you want to die in the Lord? I suppose this world as it presents its allurements, maybe we are of the impression we almost wish we could live here 
But oh, this world has its problems. So many things are dreary and so many things are opposite to the things of truth. Don't we, like Abraham, want to look for a better city than this one? Don't we, like some of the noble worthies of the Bible, long for a place where righteousness dwells in that perpetually? 2 Peter 3, verses 13 and following. Surely, in light of all that, we're ready to close our lesson, quite frankly, with number 9. There's only two eternal abodes. Only two. It's not as if God has prepared a large myriad of choices. There is but two. And on that day of judgment, when every single creature who has ever lived appears before Him, all nations will be gathered there, Matthew 25, 32. And as they do so, we know that judgment is going to be pronounced. At that point, it's not as if there's a hundred million different opportunities. There's just two. Two. On the one hand, there's heaven. Oh, it's the place of the eternal city. It's the place described in Revelation 21. There's no darkness there. There's always light. There's no evil and defilement there, Revelation 21, 27. There's no pain or sorrow, death or dying. The devil's not there either. All of the chicaneries that come with his efforts will not be found there. This place called heaven, Jesus is there, you know. The very one who died on the cross. And won't it be sweet to in fact sit at his feet and listen to him talk and preach. And those great worthies of Old Testament and New Testament lore, Abraham will be there, you know. Moses will be there. We have appreciation and you and I think about Paul and his confidence. He said, I know whom I believed and am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. When we think about those noble and illustrious worthies, I'd like to be there amongst them, wouldn't you? To go to this beautiful place. But you know, there is another possibility. To those who do not hear him say, well done. To those who are numbered on the left instead of on the right. To those who have been disobedient in this life, who have walked by sight and not by faith. To those who were never part of the kingdom or who, upon being part of it, chose to become unfaithful. We notice that there's this other place. It's called Gehenna. The King James Version, of course, reads it as hell. Four letters, of course, H-E-L-L. Perhaps in this brief consideration, we each know enough about what to say about it. It's a place of outer darkness. It's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place described as fire that's unquenchable. It's a place described, of course, where God and Christ are not there. It's a place too horrible, too awful, perhaps to fully contemplate. But didn't the rich man give us at least an inkling of it? Here he was only in the Hadean realm, and it was so bad he longed for one to simply use some water to quench his tongue. The choice is yours today and mine too. Nine things we've looked at. Nine times in which the number two has been a valuable appreciation. God has given us but these options. I've listed both of them one more time. There are those who are saved. They follow Jesus. They're members of the church. They walk by faith and not by sight. 
These are individuals who are obedient and their classification of life is descriptive of it. They'll die in the Lord and go home to glory. But on the other hand, there are the disobedient. They follow the devil. These are those who walk by sight rather than faith. They choose to be disobedient and as such, they of course build upon the sand. They are those, of course, that will not die in the Lord and they won't be able to go to heaven. Today, as we close this lesson and extend the invitation, we do so as we often do, but the choice is yours and mine as it is this day. Which will it be for you? Don't you want to be faithful and to make sure your name is in the book of life at this very moment? If we could help anybody in this audience today, maybe you've never become a Christian, but you would like to put your name on that honor roll of the saved. If we could help you do that, we'd be pleased to do it. But realize Jesus Himself demands you must believe in Him. You must repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him, but you have slipped from one side over to the other one because you've become unfaithful, and just like that church at Sardis in Revelation 3, your name has been taken out of the book of life, why not put it back in there today? If you need to come forward and make confession of error, We'd be delighted to pray to God for you. And as such, God has promised upon your confession and repentance, He'll forgive those sins. Make sure that among the numbers two, we're all on the correct side. And if we could help you today to make sure you're there, why not come at this moment while together we stand and sing?